the end of 2020 was a nightmare for me. I live in Southern California, and it is chock full of people who aren't taking this virus seriously. In my town alone, you'd be hard-pressed to find people wearing a full face covering, nose tucked in and all. The ICUs are beyond capacity, the hospitals are out of oxygen, ambulances are waiting eight hours at hospitals before getting their patients into an emergency room. It's so bad, they're even bringing in the army reserves to help the hospitals with the overflow. The most recent update was that a person in Los Angeles dies from COVID every 10 minutes and one in five people are infected. And despite all of this, people threw massive raging holiday parties, visited their families, and just assumed they'd be fine because as a society, Americans just can't bear to give two shits about anyone but themselves. It feels like the end of times. Needless to say, this has been garbage for my mental health. So over the holiday break, I found myself returning to some of my favorite films to give me comfort. It turns out movies like Shaun of the Dead are taking on new meaning for me, which I think is great, Horror films have always been about reflecting what's happening in our world. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was an anti-war film made in protest of the Vietnam War. The Saw movies came at a time where the United States was under scrutiny for the torture techniques. And Dawn of the Dead was holding up a mirror to overwhelming consumerism. The list is endless, and if you haven't checked out Eli Roth's A History of Horror series, I highly recommend it. It's packed with enlightening tidbits like this that make the horror movies we love somehow even better than we thought they were. I don't want to ramble about COVID. That's not what this episode is about. And I know there will be people watching this that are having different experiences of this pandemic. And maybe even some of the partiers are watching this like, bro, what you don't realize is I Kevin McAllistered that shit, rocking around the Christmas tree with paper cutouts duct taped to toy trains and ceiling fans. And I'd be like, that's genius. I'm jealous. And I'm a bad person for making an assumption about you and accusing you of being reckless. And they'd be like, bro, you're not a bad person, but like book covers. Don't judge them. And I'd be like, you're so smart. I envy you. And then they'd hold up a mirror and be like, look at yourself, Brosif. You're special. And I'd cry. And they'd forgive me. And we'd talk about how my perspective has changed. But deep down, I'd be wondering if they were lying. In all honesty, I try not to accuse people of anything, especially if I don't have firsthand knowledge about it. I'm a pacifist. I avoid conflict at all costs. And part of it is I know what it's like to be accused of something I didn't do. In high school, I hung out with the punks and the skaters, and we were always just minding our own business, but when groups clashed and shit went down, we were the ones who got blamed. And we weren't perfect or anything, but we looked different, and we dressed different, and we listened to different music, and some people are afraid of that. I spent a lot of my teenhood defending myself, and all in all, I was a really good kid. It sucks to get accused of something you didn't do, especially if it's something really awful. And that's what we'll be talking about today. Cody will guide us through his own history lesson of the Salem Witch Trials, and we'll talk to the queen of African horror, Nuzo Ono, and hear about her terrifying books of ghosts, hauntings, and the wrongfully accused. Hey. Hi. It's January. It's 2021. It's still January. It is still January. I thought as soon as we would hit midnight 2021, everything would be go back to normal, but uh unfortunately, you know, progress takes time. It does. We're in a uh, work in progress and I I feel optimistic. I yeah. I feel pessim- pessimistically optimistic. If that's uh, a a thing, yeah. I, I feel like I'm Yeah, there. and you know what's super cool about all of this is so we started haunting season back up in October last year, and a lot of people were saying, "Oh wow, there's finally something good in 2020," or like, "Oh now we can have like a good ending to 2020." And I feel like as a show, it went pretty good. I think it's the best show out there. I think it's really the best podcast. <laughs> I think the interviews are absolutely tremendous. You know, I think that's what a lot of people are understanding and coming. To the like, you don't get storytelling. You don't get the stories. Like, you don't get necklaces. You don't get jewelry. You don't get just such, uh, just s- such storytelling. We ask the hard hitting questions, and they they deliver. They deliver. You can only find that here on Haunting Season. People have been happy. 
And I wanted to shout out a few people in the spirit of like starting off the new year, celebrating what we were able to do and getting excited for what we're about to do. We have like all the way through April lined up already with great authors and really cool stories and some collaborations. So before we even get started with all of that, I want to shout out a couple of people. We have one person um, who sent in a couple of little videos for us. They reached out to me on Instagram. It's writer cosplays, writer underscore cosplays. And she is a huge fan of the show and was like, can I please be a guest on the show? And I said, no, of course, because, (laughs) you know, it's not necessarily something we do. But you know what? Now that I think about it, if you send me a video or some audio or something about what you love about the show, I will put you on the show that way. And she immediately sent me these videos, which I think are just the most wonderful thing I've ever received on Instagram from another person other than this North Innsbruck t-shirt. And here it is. Here it is. I'm playing it for you. Hey, Haunting Season. It's me. Thank you very much for contacting me. And it's been a pleasure of me being a fan of you for a long time. And I just want to say all this good stuff about your page and i just like how you talk about all the all the authors and the covers that you do and they're really amazing like i just cannot say it without like but thank you very much for everything and i hope you your podcasts and your crew will have a successful life and successful time here and see you later. I just love that. I just love that so much. It was the sweetest thing. So she does these really in-depth cosplay dress ups on her Instagram that are really, really impressive. The best way to support the show right now, obviously, is to subscribe on your favorite platform. YouTube, if you're watching the video version, Facebook, if that's your favorite platform, Instagram, if you want, you know, little tidbits, and then we're on every single podcast platform we could think to be on. But a super duper way of letting us know you love the show is to share what you think on Apple iTunes podcast review. So we've gotten a couple of those, and we might as well read them since we're kind of doing this. This person, Emma Montel says the storytelling is incredible the tone the pacing the occasional comic relief i was incredibly drawn in i like that one here's another one soothing they they called us soothing the stories here are so good it's a wonderful blend of suspense horror and comedy it's definitely the kind of podcast you can relax by the fireplace with thank you zilovac the misery machine which is another podcast that i've been hanging out with on Instagram and we've got like a little discord thing going with a few other uh, podcasts and they've got a really cool show where they go through like the real life stories of like uh, Elliot Smith was the episode I listened to and like all the all the craziness that happened surrounding his murder suicide? wait yeah wasn't it suicide I mean I, I'm not a huge Elliot Smith head but I I do wonder I mean, LA he's like a patron saint of Los Angeles they say it was Lake. a suicide but I don't know listen to that episode because it, it there was some really murky stuff going on there so it's like Cobain kind of stuff where it's like ooh, maybe it was murder maybe it was suicide well it's like the way that the knife was like and how You just got to listen to it. It's messed up. But so this one is, uh, I started with the scary ASMR parts one and two, which are the sleep tape episodes that I wrote. And I wasn't sure what was going on at first, but I was quickly immersed in this weird world. Josh has an excellent knack for telling an engrossing story. There's a line early on where the character mentions, I wish I had a better imagination. And it's funny because I'm the same way. But despite my mediocre imagination, I found myself not needing it as the story took over for me. This show will make you see what it wants you to see. I don't know if this was an intentional line as it as a joke to people like me, but I chuckled about it afterwards. This is a must listen and will hook you even if you're not a horror buff. That wow. is so nice. That is extremely kind. And how much do we owe them? We just gave it to them. We, we just PayPal shout out on pay- the show. <laughs> no, the trade. You know, some of these podcasts that I meet on Instagram will be like, "Hey, will you review my show? I don't need you to do anything other than listen and give your honest feedback." And then we go and review each other's shows. And sometimes. 
It results in like an amazing five-star review from the misery machine like this. And sometimes it sparks a whole conversation of like, hey, can, I, I noticed you're doing this one thing, but I think you could do this better, you know, and opens up these like really cool conversations that the podcast world seems to be like, there's not really competition here. It's all people sort of being like, let me help you do this part better. Cause I've been spending a lot of time, you know, cause podcasts are like, People are working on them from the ground up. And, yeah, uh, and there's really no, like, there's no, like, map. Everyone's just kind of learning as they go. Yeah, and it's kind of the Wild West, too, when it comes to, like, the video aspects of it and, you know, being on YouTube and how to market yourself on social. We're all embracing each other. It's a community. We're all just people trying to do something cool together. It's a wonderful time. So anyway, there's a couple other reviews like that, which are great. It's so helpful to help legitimize the show. So if anybody else wants to give us a review or you want to reach out and talk to us directly, Instagram is a great place to do that. And I encourage you all to do that. But now I think we're really ready to get into this incredible interview with the queen of African horror, Nuzo Ono. Hey, do you like the music in our show? Well, it's North Innsbruck. Check out the t-shirt. Chris from North Innsbruck is our buddy from Minneapolis. He's helped design the entire soundscape of these flagship episodes, and he's got some incredible music that's available on Bandcamp and iTunes and, you know, a bunch of other places. So you should totally check it out. But now we're getting into our interview with Nuzo Ono, the queen of African horror. And I got to tell you, it's a little bit longer than normal because she's just absolutely incredible. You're going to love this. My name is Nuzo Ono, and I write African horror. I grew up in Nigeria, one of eight children, large family, mom, dad. And we lived in what was known and still is a haunted house. I remember as a child, people would stop me and say to me, have you seen the ghost? There was all these stories about my father's house. It, it, it was a creepy place growing up, because when you hear all these people telling you stories about your family house being haunted, it puts in the fear of God in you. And I must confess, I never felt comfortable in any room in that house growing up. It's the family home and in line with Nigerian culture, we bury our dead inside the house, wherever, as long as it's in the compound. Because of course, we believe in reincarnation and we believe in wanting the family members to know the way back home when they reincarnate. I mean, I'm the reincarnation of my great grandmother, you know. So they're all buried. So the back of the house you've got right now, as we speak, we've got my grandfather's grave, my grandmother's grave, my great-grandmother's grave, my uncle's grave, my sister's grave, my brother's grave, my niece, my nephew, my mom, everyone is buried in the compound. So I think growing up, I was always surrounded by ghosts. And then, of course, we had the Biafra-Nigerian civil war. And that was a, a pretty harrowing experience. I remember seeing my first dead body going to the stream with a group of children. And we saw this body. It was, I mean, now I'm old. I reckon he must have been there for a couple of days. It was a bloated male body. And I remember all of us as children just gathering and seeing this body on the way to the stream and stopping. You know, as kids, we just stood there looking at it, you know, and everyone trying to be brave, talking about it, observing everything about it. But one thing that always stuck in my mind was that when we left that body and we began walking down to the stream and we got to the narrow path where everybody had to sort of go in a single file, I didn't want to be behind and I didn't want to be in front because I was scared of what I might see in front and I was scared about the corpse catching me behind. So I sort of squeezed myself <laughs> in the middle and um, we're all very brave but I remember at night that night I was so terrified and the fear of that first dead body never left me since then of course you've seen loads of dead bodies and things but that always stuck with me that particular one and so yeah it was um, an exciting time you grew up with bedtime moonlight stories and trust me those moonlight tales 
they were scary stories. You know, it always had to do with ghosts. It always had to do with evil stepmothers. It always had to do with people coming back from the grave. Who's telling those tales? It depends on who would be the storyteller of the night. I mean, my mom's uh, cousin, Uncle Sebastian, he was the main storyteller when we were, you know, much younger. As we got a bit older, it would depend on, it could be the driver, it could be one of the visiting aunties, just different adults would get us all outside and they'll have the peanuts to share amongst the children and we'd all sit down together and listen to the story. And you can choose, you can ask for the kind of story you like, if you want a ghost story or if you want a story about the tortoise or if you want a story about an evil stepmother, you choose. And then the adult tells the story and shares the peanuts around. <laughs> so yeah, it was fun. So you're surrounded all the time by all these you know, supernatural things. And I carried on like that till I left for England. You know, my dad suddenly discovered a Quakerism. Well, in those days, no insult to Americans, but my dad always used to say, Americans are illiterate. You know, they don't speak English <laughs> the right way. So he decided to send us off to boarding schools in England <laughs> to learn how to speak English the right way. <laughs> and um, we ended up in Quaker boarding schools which, you know, sort of opened your eyes to a few things. And here I am, all these years, right in African horror. So now you go to England, so that with your with your background and your upbringing and then going to a Quaker school, how was that adjustment, like bringing in some of your traditions, the oral traditions and like some of the, the, the spirituality and the, you know, reincarnation and then going to England and, you know, going into that kind of culture? You disconnect. Basically, you disconnect. You're here to learn. You're here to adapt. You're here to imbibe a new culture. And along the way, you are not focusing on yours. You're not focusing your, all your energies in trying to understand these new people you've come to, this new culture you've come to, how they do things, how they view things. And in the process, you're sort of shedding bits and bits of yourself. But then you find that in every culture, you know, we've all got our own superstitions and you're picking up the new superstitions. I mean, I never knew anything about Friday the 13th or the number 13 till I came to England. I never knew anything about ladders, not walking on the ladders till I came here. So you pick up all these other Western superstitions and things. And gradually when you finally settle, it gives you time to sit down and start thinking about yours, the one you left behind, the one you sort of put in a pigeonhole while you are growing in a different direction. And you start merging everything together. And that makes you the rounded person. Well, almost rounded that you are. We always learning, you know. And do the Quakers believe in reincarnation? No, no, I don't think they believe that at all. So where did you end up in the balance of that? I think I've always stuck with my African belief in reincarnation. There are some things that are so embedded in you, it never leaves you. As a child, we used to go to my great-grandfather's grave. They would kill a goat, and they would share the goat amongst all the children to eat. And then the, my, my great-granddad's grave had a funnel, like an ivory funnel, that led into the grave. The men, they would go pour wine into that funnel for him to drink. And I would sit there watching and I'm wondering, oh gosh, is his mouth open? How is he drinking all that wine? And they'll do the prayers. They would beg him to protect us, to bless us and everything. And so knowing that your family and all your ancestors are there, you're, you're having daily communication with them. Even when you come to England or you leave, it never leaves you. You always believe in it. I've always believed in the ancestors, you know. So, I mean, the Japanese do the same thing. So you just re-released the, the book, The Unclean. Yes. And can you tell us a little bit about that? The Unclean was a story that grew from two personal experiences I had. The first experience was a good family friend, a beautiful woman. Her husband died. She was the first wife there. He had a couple other wives. My mom now called me and said, can you believe what they've done to her? And I said to my mom, what? She said to me, they forced her to drink the corpse water of her late husband and made her stay in the forest with this man's body for a few days, just so she can prove she didn't kill him out of jealousy and anger because of the other wives. 
And that was such a harrowing thing for me to hear because this was an, an astoundingly beautiful, intelligent woman having to go through all these uh, horrible things. And then I realized hers is not unique. You know, it's part of the burial superstitions we have back in many cultural, you know, communities in Africa. I mean, every community has got its own superstitions around burial and things. But I always think it's how you act out on those superstitions that impacts on people and can create horror. So back home, there's this belief in that superstition about someone never dies. To die, there must be a reason for you to die. Here, you either die a natural death or a death by homicide, you know. But it's rarely do you see the police investigating a death by supernatural you know, courses. It's different. Back home, no death. No death is ever, ever not linked to the supernatural unless it's a very old man who's lived a full life or, you know, uh, someone you, you just know they died a natural death. Otherwise, every death is suspicious. So when this, poor, this man died, this poor lady had to go through this. Then the second thing was I had uh, my brother. He supposedly committed suicide. He was only 19. I remember as we were there crying, I saw some of the uh, men in the clan and they were discussing where to bury him. And they were saying, we can't bury him in the compound. You know, he's, he's killed himself. He's got to be buried out. So he doesn't bring the cause back into the family. I was livid. I remember sure. screaming at them, you know, and saying, how dare you, how dare you. But they were just, you know, being normal. That's their belief that people, certain people, we have that thing called Ajofia in Igbo culture. Ajofia is a, a bush. It's called a bad forest. It's where you chuck in people, maybe suicides people that have been killed by lightning, children that die before their parents, women that die in childbirth, people who are executed, people, uh, dwarves or albinos, just anything It's a really long list. It's a long list. <laughs> and they will chuck you into the bad forest if you die so that you can't reincarnate back into the family and bring back your curse and evil with you. And that's where these sods we are discussing chucking my brother. And then thinking about that woman who my mother's friend who had to go through what she went through and saying, OK, here is this woman, this very educated and intelligent woman forced to marry a man outside her community. And she doesn't have a child. And as usual, if you don't have a child, people always assume the worst. It's never the man's fault. It's always the woman's fault in many cultures up till today. And then finally, when she has the child, the child dies. Her child starts haunting her because he's been buried in that bad bush as a child who died before his parents. And this child is now haunting the mom and wanting to be reborn into the family. And this desperate woman who's been abused by the husband, his sisters, everyone, in desperation to bring back her child, she resorts to these unethical means of going to the witch doctor. I, I want to talk about the witch doctor because that is something I feel like it, it seems very mystical to someone who doesn't grow up in that culture. And there can be yeah. a lot of misconceptions about it. I want to talk about like the realities of the witch doctor and then what kind of like artistic liberties you took with it. Half of what I write about is what I call horror light compared to the reality of what they are, because, you know, I'm not a witch doctor. I, I don't know. But I can tell you, you live with it. You see it. It's a common thing. I remember when I was at Warwick University, I had a friend, a very good friend of mine, a Nigerian girl, who was at Keele University. And she came to visit me at Warwick. I went to pick her up at the train station. And she said to me, oh, my God, I've just had the worst experience of my life today. You know, my mom went to the witch doctor and she got me um, this cream to put on my face so that I can gain favor with everyone and everybody likes me. Well, I put on the cream on my face today. I had a fight with the, 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 the warden in my hall. I had a fight with the taxi driver that took me to the train station. And the bus driver has been so horrible to me today. God, I would, I would, let's get back to your room so I can wash off the cream. It's not working. Come on 
mom is a very educated woman and the mom believed that the cream would work and she went to a witch doctor. If you've got three kinds of witch doctors, the good ones, the bad ones and the bumbling fools, you know, those <laughs> ones are just like, yeah, idiots, I call them. Now, the good ones, they come from families, a long line of witch doctors. They actually have some skills, you know, it's like psychics. It's like mediums. We don't know where they get their powers, but they have it. When I was a child, there was a man who lived across the house. And this guy lived in this decrepit little house. But come and see the cars. You would find Mercedes Benz. You'd find the biggest cars, lines of cars packed outside this man's house. Why? Because he seemed to have the skill to heal broken bones. He inherited it from his dad and from his granddad. And it's been in the line. People don't go to the orthopedic hospital. Orthopedic hospital doctors would refer patients to this man in the village. And all he did was the bones. He just had these two bones from a human arm. And they said he would just knock the bones on you and he would know exactly where it's broken, know exactly what to do. And you'd go home fine, you know, perfectly well. And so that is a good witch doctor because he had the skill. He was never rich. He never asked for money because I think as he said, the spirits will not let him benefit from that skill. Then you have the evil ones that thrive on poverty, on ignorance. They thrive on the people's beliefs in superstition. So those are the ones that say come election time, they would claim to give juju for, which, for politicians to win elections. And so they make politicians sacrifice children, you know, or get body parts or the parts of albinos or, you know, parts from a dwarf so that they can use it to make the juju to help them win the elections. Or people who want to be rich, these horrible witch doctors tell them, this is what you want to do. And it's never anything good. I mean, when I was giving that lecture, everybody cracked up when I showed them this newspaper article showing a goat. And the goat, the heading said the police had arrested the goat and the goat was in the police custody. The police, the, the DPO, the, what do you call him? The police uh, inspector, whatever. He gave the interview saying, we have this goat in custody. Why? Because someone claimed that the goat was a human being who tried to steal a car. And when they tried to catch him, he used the witch doctor's juju and transformed himself into a goat. So the police arrested the goat and put the goat in custody. They actually believe that goat is a human being. You know, yeah. and that's thanks to the witch doctors who claim they can turn people into goats or anything. So you have those evil ones that thrive on poverty and superstitions. And of course, then you have the bumbling ones, the fools, the idiots who don't know what they're doing. And they just think, let's try our hands and just see what's going to happen. You know, it doesn't matter. We want to make quick money and get out. So, yes, the witch doctor, it's a part of every African community. And it's how you use them or how they use you that brings in the horror. So I always say anyone who wants to write African horror, you can't write African horror without bringing in the witch doctors because they are the things, witch doctors, superstitions, those two things, those two ingredients go hand in hand when you're writing any horror book from Africa. I, which kind of leads me to my question is that you've been hailed as the queen of African horror. And as someone who's, I mean, just in this brief conversation, I'm learning so much. And as far as our listeners and pod watchers are going, they're probably very unfamiliar as well with the African horror genre. So I, what I'd like to say is like, what, what, what is so like, what makes African horror so like broad, so beautiful, so engaging uh, and so horrifying? I think the thing is the vast amount of communities you have in Africa. You know, I think, for instance, in the United Kingdom, we've got England, we've got Wales, we've got Scotland, we've got Northern Ireland, you know, we've got the, the, the Channel Islands. Africa is so vast. People think it's just Africa. No, East Africa is so different from West Africa. You know, they're like polar opposites. Same thing with South Africa or North Africa, which is like the Arab, you know, part of Africa. Now, because Africa is so vast, even within the East, West, North and South, each country, I mean, the different 
what I will call the different communities. I don't use tribes because tribes has got something we call the connotation of colonialism. It's negative. You know, it was the colonist masters that called it tribes. Here, you would not call Scottish communities tribes. You would call them communities. So I would say each community, there are so many communities, thousands, thousands and counting. And each of them have got their own law, their own beliefs, their own rituals. And so there is this vast array of materials you can tap into, terrifying. It's a bit like the Japanese horror. I think that's why the Japanese horror, people were very terrified, very fascinated by it when it hit, because it came from that old Japanese, you know, Caden uh, uh, tradition of telling regional, regional, you know, thematic horror stories that dealt with different, different regions and their beliefs and everything. It's the same thing with African horror. We've got all these different communities with their different ideas, different monsters, different you know, entities, different evils. And so when you merge all that, it's something new. It's something different from the normal everyday horror people are used to reading. So that's why it brings in something, you know, introducing them to a different kind of horror. And as I always say, I write ghost stories. Um, as we all know, as horror writers, if you decide you're going to go into horror, choose the one you like, the one you think. Now, if you want to write Frankensteins or body parts, or you want to write psychological thrillers, or I like ghosts. And I decided if I'm going to write about ghosts, I will write African ghosts. And that's because also African ghosts are different from Western ghosts. Now, most Western ghosts, you know, all they just basically do is they pop up and sort of do a flash willy kind of thing. And you go, oh, here's a ghost. And that's it. You know, what's your agenda? What's your business? Why are you popping up? Somebody saw the lady in white. Big deal. So what did the lady in white do? Oh, she walked across. She floated across. Big deal. No. Because we have this thing that nobody dies in natural death. There are different kinds of death. And so these different kinds of death determine the kind of ghost that's going to pop up. So say we have the sad death. The sad death is when somebody dies, you know, and the family, the, the, the family line is wiped out. That's the end of that family line. If the ghost is going to come out, the ghost of that sad person is going to be a weeping ghost, a sad ghost, an unhappy ghost looking for a way to bring back the family line. If somebody dies a sudden death, a young person who doesn't realize they're dead, they might be angry. They might not realize they're dead. They are coming out because they've got unfinished business. You know, they want to cling on to life. So you get the, the sort of stories and superstitions about somebody going to a different town, finding someone who they knew had died, living a normal life, you know, married with children, and suddenly they see them and they scream, but you're dead. And as soon as the ghost sees somebody that recognizes it, it vanishes. You get stories like that all the time. And that's to do with the ghosts that died suddenly. Then you get the evil dead, the ones that are killed by lightning or executed and things. So of course, those ones are going to come out with a, a purpose, vengeance, revenge. You know, so because there are so many beliefs about people dying, the ghosts that come out always have unfinished business. They always have an agenda. And so as a writer, you determine if the agenda is going to be for the good or for the evil. And so that's why in my book, The Reluctant Dead, you'd see the one about the schoolboy, the young boy that died going back to school in a car crash and he didn't realize he was dead. He carried on, he went back to school. He carried on doing everything in his class, carried on living with his friends until finally the day his mom came to school to report to the school that her son was dead. And they called and the school is like surprised. What do you mean he's dead? Of course he's not dead, he's at school. He's taking his lessons. And that's when the child finally realized he was dead. He never knew. That's you know an unexpected death and that kind of ghost has that kind of agenda. So that's the good thing about African horror, as I said, there are so many things, just so many communities and so many different laws and superstitions and beliefs that can influence it. So you, you put African horror on the map and you want it to raise to the level of, you know, American horror, Japanese, British, Korean, Scandinavian, 
I've read recently a horror story from Singapore, and it just opened my mind completely to what life is like in Singapore while what's, reading. What's the title? What's the title so I can get it? Please, I, have, um, I don't think I've read a horror story from Singapore. The author is Jill Girardi, G-I-R-A-R-G-I-R-A-R-D. I'll send you a link to the story oh, that I read. Jill this is an, another Girardi. one of hers that I just picked up. Uh, oh. I met her on Twitter just completely randomly and then... Yeah, she sent me a copy of one of her anthologies, and I was just blown away. I found the same with your books, is that it's a whole different world that I never (laughs) knew existed. And I've been to a couple parts of Africa. I've been to Senegal, Egypt, and Kenya, all three completely different experiences, like you're saying. exactly. I got to hang out with the Maasai in Kenya and got to see the Egyptian culture and all that. It's all very, very diverse. Can you speak to why diversity is so important within the horror genre? What do we gain from this diversity and what are you striving for? I think it's just the thing of letting people realize that there are different worlds. There are other worlds outside of Maine different worlds outside of the United States, of England, outside the West, where horror can thrive and flourish. A lot of people say to me, why do you write horror? Why do you write African horror, considering everything going on in the continent? As if being Africa and experiencing some negative situations invalidates you to have the entertainment of horror, because that's all horror is. It's an entertainment, you know. And being entertainment, it's also educative. Now people are reading. That's why when, for instance, um, the latest film came out, what was that film? The Korean film, Parasites. People were making it, you know, it was amazing because people never knew anything about that aspect, you know, of Korea. Same thing with horror. When you read horror from different cultures, you learn about their people. You learn about the setting. You learn about the traditions. A different culture, a different tradition. You learn about different law. And being able to discover things from other people brings a, 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 a wonderful experience, a very satisfying experience because you, it's not just same as before. You know, after a while, I think horror fans have become jaded. We've seen it all. We've done it all. We've won the T-shirt. What else? And so when something comes out from a different culture you've never known about, it's mind-blowing. It's exciting. You want to learn more. You want to discover more till the next new thing comes, you know. So maybe if I get horror from Alaska, the Eskimos, that would be brilliant. I don't think I've read one um, apart from um, John Lindquist and his Scandinavian horror. But I I would want to discover horror maybe from Mars. When we uh, go over to Mars, there might be something there. I don't know. That's not a, you know, um, science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so another turn of that same coin, I guess. So like I could research all I want, but I'll, I'll never be able to write what it's like to grow up in Nigeria. That's not my story. But I do want to do as much as possible to tell important stories from perspectives that are less common than what's typically we see published in horror. So as a white American male writer, is there anything I can be doing to explore and promote diversity in my own writing that doesn't obviously overstep boundaries like, you know, that's not my story. I think I always say to everybody, I mean, these days, there's a lot of PC around cultural appropriation. Everybody's um, going on about it as if you can't write anything that's not from your own culture. I don't agree with that because as far as I'm concerned, if you have a story to tell, tell it. You don't know who's going to be... Someone like me, I'm very spiritual. And so I always say to everyone, my characters speak to me. I sit down and decide I'm going to write something. Many times I don't even like doing interviews about my books because I never reread. Once I read it, it's done. It's over. I don't read it again. And many times I don't realize I wrote what I wrote because when I write, I could sit down for five days in a go and just write without getting off the computer. And once it's out, it's out. I don't want to see it again or read it again. So if its character is speaking to you, no matter where that character comes from, go with it, write about it. So say you've read a book now on African horror and you know something connected with you there and you decide you're going to set your next story in Africa. Say your characters are not Africans, 
but they are in Africa and you can research it. You don't have to be African to be able to research things. You've been, you've visited, you can remember the things you've seen. So you can write from that aspect of authenticity from what you've seen and experienced and you know researched. And then your characters can be your character from your own community. You understand their, the way they think, the way they, you know, they rationalize things, the way they believe their beliefs and things. So I always say when a character speaks to you, regardless of where that character comes from, go with it. And the best thing is that the more you read about other cultures, the more your mind opens, your mind is ready to accept everything. Because it's like people, when I talk about Africa, People always think, oh, this is so unreal. Is this happening? Can this be happening? What the world might see as unreal is the real with us. And so you as a writer that reads an African horror story and realizes, wow, this is not so far-fetched. That might well influence you when you write yours. And there's no limit. You can allow yourself to go as far as you like because everything is believable. Which kind of leads me to my question is we're kind of like living in the same horror story with uh, the pandemic. We're hearing about the atrocities in Armenia, the war out there, troubles with uh, SARS in Nigeria. And I'm wondering as uh, an author, are where are you finding like inspiration right now in, in particular like horror? Are you finding it, like inspiration in the current climate or are you finding it in the past or are you looking forward like in the near future and looking back on that sort of thing? I mean... One thing that happened to me when the pandemic hit is I couldn't write. I think a lot of writers had the same block. We were just so busy dealing. Some people were lucky. They could tap into the pandemic and write. I couldn't. So for months, I was just struggling. And I couldn't write anything. And then when I started writing, I found I did not want to touch on the pandemic at all. I don't want anything in the pandemic in my writing. It's too raw. It's too current. It's just too much in my face. I don't want it. Every day you hear about the virus. Every day you want to hear, I don't want to write about the virus because I'm living the virus. So funnily enough, the book I have just completed, I call it an African horror light. I'm doing an African horror light series. So it's not as dark as my other ones. And that one is influenced by what's happening in your country, you know, and it, it, it's called the African Putus. And it is influenced by current events in America when it merges with Africa. So I've got this American president who has an accident and wakes up in the body of a little African child. And there he is. He doesn't know how he's ended up there. And so the little African child himself is grows up um, thinking his name, all he knows is that his name is Putus. He doesn't know anything else apart from his name being Putus and possibly a last name of Flutus. So this little African boy is growing up calling himself Putus. And so there's going to be this battle of the witch doctor tells him, you know, it's um, an evil spirit called Putus. So we've got these three Putus now, the American president, the little African boy, and the water spirit. So we've got a battle of three Putuses. Uh, we have to finish, figure out who is the real deal. So I'm writing that. So that's sort of uh, influenced by current events, but nothing about the pandemic, nothing at all. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I cannot wait to read that because one, <laughs> I think it's hilarious. And two- It is hilarious. That's why I call it light, African horror light. <laughs> it's a dark farce. <laughs> and two, I just think it, it's also a really relevant topic. A lot of people are trying to put themselves in each other's shoes nowadays and be a little bit more thoughtful about how we live our lives. So to literally be put as like, you know, whoever you imagine the president to be, ending up in the literal shoes of a small African boy is really fascinating. I kind of already know the answer to this question, but how do you think horror as a genre can affect change in people? Because a lot of times the, the genre is seen as like gratuitous. Oh, it's too gross for me or whatever. But I don't see it that way. I see it as this beautiful arena to talk about some like really serious topics. Exactly. Exactly. I think you just hit the nail on the head. And that's why when I write my books, my dark horror, I always choose on a topic, a, a, a social. My new book coming out, like on Hallowed Graves, I dealt with the topic of the widow's plight. What happens to widows? 
and it's a terrible thing. The other one I did, dead cops. I chose the topic of albinos and how their body parts are harvested by evil witch doctors and the discrimination faced by albinos, you know. Um, the one um, that's coming up, my next book is being released in spring. It's called A Dance for the Dead. And A Dance for the Dead deals with the problem of what I call black on black discrimination. In this period, we are having Black Lives Matter. Yet in Africa, you have so many communities who are stigmatized and called the slaves to the gods because of custom, because of tradition. And so they are denied basic human rights by people of their own communities. They are denied so many, they are, they are ostracized, they suffer a lot of injustices simply because of this culture of slavery. And so my next book, A Dance for the Dead, tackles that all under the fictitious horror genre, you know, the cover of horror. And I think horror gives us the liberty to say things, to tackle things that normally if you tried to do it, say on a reality-based nonfiction manner, you could offend some people, you could not bring your message across the right way. So many things can impact on that. But with horror, there, is, there are no holds bad. You can write you can say, you can do it all, and people will pick the message, you know. Yeah, it's still in horror, but the message, the underlying message is there. And in your opinion, what makes a great horror story or a, or a, a, a good scary story? For me, it's the insidious. I think that's why I like Stephen King, being able to take something so ordinary, something so normal. It could be just a dog, Kuja. It could be just somebody losing weight, Tina. It could be just insomnia, somebody who's not sleeping. Just everyday mundane things that suddenly develops into this creepy, insidious horror. That's what I like. I may write a different kind of horror that hits you bang on the face, but I like the ones that start off unexpectedly normal every day and then suddenly it grows and that's the horror there's nothing like walking when you're walking ideas are coming you get all these ideas about plots about structure about characters and of course i like the pub that's why i miss the pub you know there's nothing like the pub you come different pubs have different environments different energy different people you pick up so much at the pub in character development yeah i don't drink but i just go into the pub to just enjoy myself. Yeah. Going forward, you talked about you've got a book coming out in the spring. Yeah. And do we want to plug anything? Do you, is there anything you want to plug? You're working on another book, which happens to do with like a president who's going to be a African boy. <laughs> that that should be out. Sometime. That's not the book coming out in the spring. The one coming out in the spring is a dance uh, for the dead. And that one, as I said, it deals with um, black on black slavery. And that one is about a prince who suddenly finds himself a slave overnight because he stumbles, he's, he's taken into the shrine of one of the gods and nobody enters the forbidden shrine. As soon as you enter that forbidden shrine, you become a slave. So suddenly one day he's a prince. He's the leader of the you know, elite uh, 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 military squad and he ends up a slave. And so he has to deal with this situation. And the only way he can get himself out of that situation is to make a journey to the realm of the ancestors to free himself from it as well as find out who was responsible for his downfall. And that's what A Dance for the Dead is. And that's coming out, as I said, in spring next year. The one I've just completed, The African Potters, I don't have a date for that one getting published, but you know we're still doing the editing right now. So fingers crossed that will be out as well next year. Otherwise, after that, I'm working on a third one right now, Our Beautiful Husband. It's about a rock star who marries a, an African woman and goes back to meet her family in Africa and suddenly finds himself the wife instead of the husband. Well, thank you so much. This was not only fun, but really enlightening. I feel like I'm like super charged to write a story about characters in Africa now. Yay! See? It's what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm you. Yes, Josh. Go, Josh. <laughs> Listen, thank you, guys. Cody, thank you thank very you. much. You know, I'm really glad and honored by this opportunity to be on your show and uh, spread the message. That was an incredible, incredible interview. 
after that interview, I just felt like elevated and just felt like I was in a better place and just gained so much knowledge. So much knowledge and encouragement. I feel like I am, am now really excited to write a story that takes place in Africa. Whereas before I was timid about it and she really helped me kind of break through some barriers that I have about like diversifying and how to diversify the stories that I tell. It's exciting. After reading her books and speaking to her and, and all of this, I, I still think the scariest thing in her writing that I've read so far is, is the um, it is connected to the witch doctors and this idea of in the, the book that I was reading, the witch doctor, you know, you go to them for help because you're desperate and they go, you're, you know, evil, you're you're troubled and you're going to bring damage to your whole family. This, this this idea of being accused of something that like you had no knowledge of and then you believe it or do you believe it, you know, but the whole village believes it. Oh my gosh. Well, it's like theoc like a theocracy basically gone wrong. And it reminds me uh uh Joshua, I don't know if you know the true story about what what actually went on. Uh and that's like something that happened in our well we weren't even in the United States yet. This was still a colony. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the Salem witch trials. I went down like a dark web. I went down into a dark place and I found out the... Ladies and gentlemen, hey, hey, listen. I'm going to do my best uh, Alex Jones here and, 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 and try to bring it down to you. You know, uh, the, Salem, the Salem witch trials is totally bogus. What you read in the books and what you hear and see, it's all false. Here's the real true story. That's my that that's my Alex Beetle Jones. Juice? No, no, no. There's that guy Alex Jones who's a nutbag. Uh, Listen up here. That's gonna get real interesting. <laughs> TikTok, my friend. Did you know that? The, like, okay. So back, I'm, I'm, we're going back to 1692. We're going to Salem. It's not even Massachusetts. It's a colony. And these okay. two girls, teenagers, they start doing this like TikTok dance where they're like convulsing and they're having like these spaz attacks. Well, the parents have never seen anything like this before in their life. They're like, what is going on here? We don't know what this is, and we're a little scared. So they call up the good doctor, William Riggs. William Riggs, Puritan doctor, comes over, and they go, uh, hey, we don't know what's going on with our daughters. They're, like, contorting. They're having these spasms. They're doing these uh, weird things. We don't know what, what it is. The doctor takes one good look at the, the two girls, and he goes, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is uh, they're fine. The bad news is they've been bewitched. Wait, how was, how was the good news they're fine and then the bad news is they're bewitched? <laughs> the good news is there are certain parts of this story that I am not tracking well. I went down the dark web. Okay, but that's the accusation is that they, uh, they've these, been these girls who are doing these bizarre things are witches. And it's going viral, but the, the people around them don't know. But other teenage girls in the, in the community are, are starting to do these dances. And they're starting to contort and they're starting to have these spasms and all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, the doctor is going, who did this to you? And the girls are like, oh, it was this lady. It was this lady. It was this lady. Well, they start going like, all right. They take it very seriously. They, they, I mean, these people, these the, the Puritan folk, take it very seriously, this whole bewitching kind of accusations and all this kind of stuff. And these ladies are yeah. like, hello, I don't even know who these girls are. I, 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 I don't know, and I'm not a witch. Well, one uh, who is accused says, yeah, okay, if it's going to spare me my, my life, I'll say, yes, I did bewitch these ladies. Okay, and this is something we see even today where, like, you know, there will be, uh, like, a, a murder or a rape or something, and the evidence is piled up against someone who's innocent, but it makes more sense for them legally, or they get the advice to legally say, I, I did, did it, in order to get a smaller sentence than what they're being threatened with, which could be life or death. Exactly. And then the good doctor, you know, Mr. Uh, William Riggs, shows up and is like, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news for you. Oh, no, not with the good news. <laughs> your son is a sorcerer and your daughter's been bewitched. Now, name us. And so then people are being accused and all this kind of stuff. And it goes back and forth. You know what it would be a fun show we should start maybe writing? is like a, a, like ER. We could have George Clooney play 
the good doctor, William Riggs. William Riggs, Puritan doctor. And, like, you'd be like, we'd start off, we'd be in Salem, in the Massachusetts colony, and we'd be, you know, like, plowing fields, doing our daily duty or work or whatever, just a normal day in Salem, uh, Massachusetts, or the colony, and then maybe one of our daughters or sons falls off a horse and hurts their arm. And it's like, oh, well, got to call the good doctor. So call over William Riggs, Puritan doctor, and be like, hey, uh, he fell off a horse. Can you take a look at his arm? And then the doctor goes, ooh, boy, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. <laughs> I've got good news and bad news. The good news is he's absolutely fine. The bad news is your child is dead. <laughs> the bad news is you better start planning a funeral. In all seriousness, it's just like some sort of like the theocracy of like insanity because like I think there were like 200 people accused. You mentioned Giles Corey where he was like they slowly suffocated him because he was like, this is ridiculous. But there were like 19 people hanged. There were like over 200 accused of this kind of stuff. There was like people that were in, like it, it's just very it's a very people were like they were like drowned and burned at the stake and stuff. Right. Well, that was that's funny is I didn't see anything about the stake because I always assumed like Salem with the witch trials and all that kind of stuff was always about like burning at stake that I, I didn't see any or read anything about that, but it was always mm. like hanging. And then there was also like the okay. prison, like the, a lot of them died in prison. Weren't there like things like you can tell someone's a witch because yes. if you drown them, they won't drown. Right. And so if you drown, you're not guilty, but you're dead. Right. You know, you'd be accused of something. So witchcraft and all that kind of stuff has been around for a long time. And in, in particular, like Salem, it was like, oh, you have to um, repeat, you know, say something from the Testament. And if you like were to stutter or if you were, to, then it means like, oh, you're a sorcerer, you're a witch and you're guilty. And there was one dude who actually, as he was like, you know, had his, was being about ready to be hung or hanged. What is the proper terminology? Hanged. Is it hanged? Okay. It's hanged. So he was about ready to be hanged. And then he goes through the whole thing and he reads the whole, no problem. They go, oh, it's just the devil tricking us. <laughs> and it's like, you don't win. Early on. When the girls, when the first girls were accused of being witches, like one of the first things they did to try and cure it was they took the girl's urine and made a biscuit out of it and fed it to the dog. Witch cake is, I think is what they call it, right? <laughs> Such weird stuff. Really, when you think about it, if you've been accused of witchcraft at that time, you're not getting out of it. You're going to be guilty of it no matter what. You're not going to win a case. And this is not the last time that we've treated people that way here in America. We've got a very dense history of treating people shittily and accusing people of things that they didn't do. And it sucks. It sucks. It sucks because like things like the Holocaust then happen or like what's happening at our Mexican border. And obviously we have a, a vast history of treating black people and women in a discriminatory way that has just filled our prison system and, you know, caused hundreds and hundreds of years of misery. And the reality of it is, is we we have to control the way that we interact with each other. And you have to understand that when you say something, you cannot ever really take it back. That impact happens. I like to live my life in a way that just tries to be kind and understanding and do my research and think before speaking and try and treat everyone with the love they deserve because we're all human and we're all incredibly different. And that's the coolest part of being a human being is like how different we all are. And you kind of miss out on it if you don't allow yourself to travel or don't allow yourself to even like research other cultures. And one great way of doing it, you know, if you're watching this and you're a horror fan is reading horror from other cultures like Nuzo Ono, who was our guest today. Uh, her African horror has been really eye-opening to me. You know, the celebration of our search for diversity in horror that we started even back in episode one. I'm going to keep looking for people writing horror in different cultures. And if you know of any, share them with me because diversifying what we know in the fields that we are most attracted to is the best way to open your mind and learn how to treat everybody else, uh, you know, in a better way. 
Haunting Season was created by me, Joshua Sterling Bragg. It's produced by Greg Holdsman and Jessica Richman. Executive produced by Matt Gielen, Patrick James Lynch, Ryan Gielen, and as a joint production of Believe Limited and Matt Gielen. This episode was written and hosted by me, Cody Dugan, and Joshua Sterling Bragg. Edited by the glorious Colby Crow, and all the music in this episode was made exclusively for the podcast by North Innsbruck. One last huge shout out to our guest again today, Nuzo Ono, the queen of African horror. And if you like our show, please subscribe on your favorite platform. We have a video version of the show on YouTube and Facebook, and audio versions wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Pods, Spotify, Stitcher, what have you. Next week is a story episode. We're getting back on track here with the 2021 schedule now that the holidays are over at the point of recording this i have no idea what it's going to be but i promise it's going to be good see you next week tune in thank you